listening to the Story Embers podcast, a podcast dedicated to guiding and inspiring Christian storytellers to glorify God with excellent craftsmanship. I'm your host, Grace Livingston, and welcome to episode 36, World Building 101. I'm Grace Livingston. I'm Josiah DeGraff. I'm Rolina Hatfield. And I'm Dea Slam. And I am Hope Ann. And today we're tackling the ins and outs of world building. How does world building affect the rest of your story? How can you introduce complex world building elements to readers? And what are some common world building mistakes writers can make? Also, how many times can I say world building in this intro? This is bad. (laughs) Um, But we'll be tackling these questions and more today. I am so excited. World building is one of my favorite parts of writing, and I cannot wait to hear what each of you have to say. So let's jump in with a broad look at some common mistakes writers make when world building. Specifically, what are some elements of a realistic world that authors often forget to think through? when crafting their story world. I'm going to pick on Hope to go first this time. Okay, so there are lots of elements. And one thing I've learned with creating my worlds is that you aren't ever going to be able to put all the elements in one story. You kind of have to pick and choose which ones you want. And I actually have a rating system of, so these are the important things I want to focus on. And these are the secondary things that I know, but, you know, won't really come into the story. And these are the things that are cool, but also won't come into the story. And those kind of vary from book to book. But one thing that I feel like is not touched on a lot is weather. And being down in the Dominican Republic right now is something that kind of brought it way into focus of how much weather will affect your whole world. You know, in the States, you know, you have your normal houses, you have glass windows, you have your your, your winter wardrobe and your summer wardrobe and all this stuff. Down here, it's nice all year round. No houses have heat. Very few places have air conditioner. It's just there's windows, there's doors, they're left open all the time because of the weather and rain and climate. Things aren't really built of wood. Things are, you know, floors are all tile. And so you just sweep stuff out the door, you spill water on the floors, it doesn't matter because it's going to dry up anyway. Um, So like the way buildings are built are different. The way they look is different. The way people dress is different depending on weather. And you go, you think like Sanderson, his Stormlight Archives, they have these huge storms that come through once or twice. I can't remember how often they come through, but they have these huge storms. And so like that culture is very much built on weather. Of There's things that happen, things that are recharged during the storms. They're, the buildings are built facing certain directions or to protect themselves from the storms. And so this is just something that would be a very kind of subtextual in your culture, perhaps depending on what type of weather it is, but also it's going to play a pretty big part in a lot of aspects, even the food they eat and the animals they have. And it's just going to play a huge huge role in the lives of all your characters. One good rule of thumb regarding weather, as Hope said, is uh, something called the continental effect. This is just that the farther you get from an ocean, the more erratic weather is. So keep that in mind if you have a, a map of your world, considering if you're doing a um, fantasy setting here, then the farther it is from the ocean, the more erratic the weather should be. One of the things that you know, comes to my mind when I think about what do authors forget to include um, is including unique social customs and mores that make the world feel unique. There are some times when I'm reading a work of of fantasy and it becomes rather clear to me that, okay, this is really just a modern culture in fantasy garb 
where they might use a few these and thous. They might not use as many cools or lols, but you know, the way that they interact with it and treat each other and function in a society feels rather modern, or it feels like most other books, okay? And one of the things that really good fantasy and or sci-fi authors do is they look for ways to determine, well, how can I make this culture unique? What are some of the unique social taboos they have that you just don't do in this society? And there may not be a rhyme or reason for it because sometimes there are taboo things that we just don't do in our society that there isn't a rhyme or reason for. What does the social hierarchy look like in this society and who's kind of on top? What does it take it to make it? Okay, and this is different from culture to culture. In several societies of the world, there is a very clear class system based on who has power or who has money. Here in America, we, well... I won't get political and debate, do we have a class system? But, you know, America tends to be more democratic, tends to be more egalitarian. But that does not mean there isn't an unwritten social hierarchy. You know, speaking as a school teacher, I see hierarchies in my, you know, in my classes all the time. There are the kids who are the cool kids, and there are the kids who are the uncool kids. Based on what they dress, what sort of things they talk about, there are some things that are cooler to talk about than others. This is one of the reasons why I was not part of the cool crowd growing up. Because when your interests are in fantasy novels and in board gaming and in role playing, well, you're not just not going to be in the cool crowd because the cool crowd talks about other things. And so I want to get a sense of, you know, what does it take to be in the cool crowd in this specific society? What kind of prejudices do these people have? What are the foul paws in the society? What kind of gender expectations do people have for for men and women because those are also things that have changed over time and if you think that gender expectations in you know 1950s america are standard well guess what they aren't medieval europe was not the same thing as 1950s gender expectations so i'm always looking for you know stories that are giving me unique societies and i think that sometimes we forget to develop unique societies um and and social mores and norms for story worlds and one other cool thing, also by Sanderson, because I listened to some of his stuff on world building, but when you are creating a world, or when you're even just focusing on your story, his recommendation was pick one or two things, a small handful of things, and focus on those. Like you take Stormlight Archives, it's a very unique world, but if you focus and look at the things that are there, it boils down to like, there's the gender roles of women read, men do not. There's the weather, where there's the huge storms that come through. But a whole bunch of stuff is built on those two things of like, okay, so if only women can read, what does that mean for all of these characters? What does that mean for all of the men? What does that mean for this person who knows how to read? And it makes a world feel very deep because you look at it and if it's deep in these aspects that we see, then it must be deep in all the other aspects as well. But obviously we can't show every single aspect of a world. So we have to focus on a few. And if we can focus on a few and then kind of build the culture around those, you can get some really unique things. I totally agree with Josiah about building societies that feel different from the one we live in, the ones we're used to reading about. When I was thinking about this topic of world building, this is actually one of the main things that stood out to me that can be done wrong because some people will do this in a surface way. This this generally shows up 
when they focus so much on creating new societies, but not new cultures. So what I mean by that is like a society is this really large scale. Just I mentioned gender roles. They might try to do something new and unexpected with gender roles. And often this is like social justice warrior fiction that you're coming across this in there. They're trying to make a point here. And uh, I appreciate authors who who make points subtly and through subtext and aren't trying to make it super obvious. Um, generally, they're better at this. But if if you just focus on um, large-scale things like, okay, gender roles are different. Um, the political system is different. I have this situation that's supposed to represent uh, racism in America. Then that's not focusing on really what it means to live in that world. Because those are, those are issues we face. But in, in your day-to-day life, it's more about how do you spend your time? How do you address superiors or inferiors? What do you dream of being when you grow up? Things like that are much more what I call culture rather than focusing on society at large. One one book that comes to mind with this is um, The Children of Blood and Bone, um, which Josiah likes and I do not. So if you respect our opinions, there's a 50% chance you'll like it. In, in this book, the first few chapters, I honestly love. They're great opening. And I was so, so excited because there was such a rich culture. But then as the story progressed, it turned out to be uh, more about the frictions in the larger society and it became less and less unique in the culture that was represented. So both are important. And uh, just remember that the little things are sometimes more important than the big things. Yeah. And, you, you know, we've talked about this before. And I'm, you know, I, I, I like the series you know, a lot more than, than you do. Um, I, I would agree to an extent, though, that there are some things in that world that you know, simply aren't developed, especially in the first book when it turns into more of an adventure than living in the society. Now, I would defend the decision because I felt like that was the right place for it to work. In, and I thought that the aspects of the world she was focusing on were the most important things for the story. But as the Odeus and Hope said, I do think that the most important thing, because you, you really can't do everything, both because you don't have time and because you're if you try to fit everything into the story, you know, you're going to go on a lot of rabbit trails that aren't needed. So I would certainly recommend thinking about well, what is the story you're going to be focusing on? I you might not need to think about their education system if education really never plays a role in the book. On the other hand, if you're writing the next Harry Potter, you better think about what makes their education system unique because we're going to be spending the whole book there. So think about where is this book taking place? Make sure you you really develop those. I also should throw out here while we're talking about different aspects of role building and not to be overly promotional, but we do have a great world building questionnaire on this in the Story Embers Resource Library. So if you go to storyembers.org forward slash resources, you'll find a world building questionnaire that will help you with all of these areas. That's my promotional bit for this episode. So I'll shut up now. <laughs> that was a great promo voice. <laughs> yes, and I will also put a link to that in this episode show notes. Highly recommend it, by the way. It's honestly one of my favorite resources we have. Okay, so is everyone ready for the next question? Can I add one thing first? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So if you just want to get a lot out of a little, when it comes to world building, I think one of the most important things you can always focus on is the language people use. If you write a modern American, your world building may be profoundly unique, but it just won't feel right. Small things can make this change. One thing I really like to focus on is creating my own idioms. And I, I might base them off idioms I know, but they're going to sound, they're going to use different metaphors. And if you can, if you want to go even farther, you can change the grammar a little bit, but that's that's uh, for if you're really going hardcore. And I know I just said I wouldn't be overly promotional, 
But just in case you want to learn more about how to do this, Deus has a great article on this on the blog that I presume Grace will also be linking to in the show notes. So I'm just going to take my role as being the promotional guy here and just own that right now. Dang it, Josiah, you're doing all my lines for me. You're welcome. <laughs> I think I better do some promoting of my own before I'm out of a job, I guess. We'll be right back after this break. Feeling stuck or like something in your story isn't as strong as it could be? Swing by our resource library for some tried and true brainstorming tricks and a creativity boost. Our world building and character questionnaires are perfect for getting those storytelling juices flowing again. Find these and other amazing resources at storyembers.org resources and be sure to check out the show notes for a link to Deus' amazing article, How to Create Original Slang That Enriches Your Story World. Welcome back, everyone, to our discussion on world building. So far, you panelists have examined some common pitfalls you've seen other writers fall into when developing story worlds, and you've shared some of your own tips on how to avoid these mistakes. For this next bit, I wanted to tackle kind of the, the why question. Why is world building so important, and what, what does it bring to your story? Is it just a cool setting, or does world building affect other elements of your story? You know... I think there's a lot of potential to do this. I also think it really depends on what your story is about. Okay. You know, if you look at someone like Brandon Sanderson, Brandon Sanderson's stories always have to do vitally with how the world works. Mostly because a lot of Brandon Sanderson stories are kind of closet mysteries and they're mysteries about how does the world work. Um, if you look at most of his climaxes, most of the climaxes have to do with the characters figuring out something about how the world works and that what's what helps them succeed. Okay. Now, Sanderson is not the only author who uses that technique. There are other um, fantasy authors who do the same. You know, there are aspects of uh, Children of Blood and Bone that we talked about originally where it's not the same way as Brandon Sanderson, but you know, a lot of it does have to follow the first book has to do with well, how do we restore magic to the world? And so understand how the magic works, how it, you know, people gain magic, how they lose magic is pretty essential for that story and how it works. Um, you know, there are others where the magic certainly is relevant. The unique world do certainly affect the story, but it doesn't affect it in a as major of a way. You know, I would say that there should be something about what makes the world unique that affects the story. You know, if you could take the story and transplant it into the modern world without changing anything, well, that might be a sign that your story isn't connected enough to the world as it is. You know, so there should be some unique element, but I also think that there's a lot of freedom the author has here and that you know, not every story needs to be a Brandon Sanderson story that's a mystery box about how the world works. I think there is room for a variety of different approaches here for authors to take. Also, if you can transplant your story into the real world and it doesn't affect the story, maybe you should transplant it into the real world. Maybe you're just hopping on the fantasy bandwagon and you don't really belong there. Merlina, what about you? Just a quick thought that even if you're not creating this fantastic fantasy world, even if you have a contemporary story, um, your characters, your people, the setting, the society is still in a world and how that world influences the characters, how they act, how they think, it needs to be consistent. So I think that the, the world that they're in is definitely going to affect all elements of story in the end, just depending on what world they're in. So again, even if you didn't like create a whole bunch of unique elements for your story, like say historical fiction, you know, they're still in a world setting. 
Um, it just may already, a lot of the work may have already been done for you because you get to research, you know, what happened in that time period. Um, but it, it just needs to be consistent throughout the story. And I think it's really helpful that when you're going back and you're looking at your world and how it influences the story and the descriptions and how your characters um, interact in their world is definitely through the rewrite is where that can happen a lot is to make sure that all of the world elements are consistent throughout the entire story. And also another thing with world building is you can make it very thematic depending on what you choose. So if your theme is about courage or about fear, look at your culture. What does your culture think about cowards? Like if the culture is about glory and honor, there might be things that they call cowardness, which really isn't cowardness. It's courage because it's doing what's right, even though everyone else is going to hate you for it. There's like a huge range of things you can do to either make your world building thematic or to make it involved in the plot itself because even though your world is the setting of your story the more roles a aspect of your story can play the better so if your culture or if your weather or if the weapons people use if, if these things can be woven into the plot your story will be all the stronger for it one example just came to mind of integrating theme into world building. Uh, this is also self-promotional. I should have Josiah promote this for me because he's the promotional guy. But actually one of my uh, free stories you get if you sign up for my email list. This situation is I have two magic users stuck in a magical, or actually one, one magic user is stuck in a magical escape room. The other one created a magical escape room. And the process of how they both interact with the situation um, reveals their worldviews. So the guy who created the escape room intended you to break out through one process that represented his worldview. The guy who was stuck in there broke out through another process that he invented out of his own worldview. And uh, I find magic systems are a really good way to just explore worldviews in that way. And other, other elements of world building can do that too, like your political systems, uh, your geography and, and such. Wait, what story is this with magical escape rooms? It's called Ventar the Bard. I, I just released it like a month or two ago. I need to read this now. It's, uh, it's a short story prequel to my novel. Man, I'm going to have to read that. So my next question, starting to wrap up here, we've talked about tackling world building just as the writer and from the storycraft perspective, but let's bring the reader into it. How do you introduce readers to the crucial world building aspects in your story? How do you go about introducing a reader to one of these unique worlds? Oh, yeah. So one cool way to explain part of your world building without info dumping is to have something go wrong. So whether it's magic, you know, this person has magic and it's not working right, whether it's technology and it's not working right. But when something is wrong, for one, it gives you literally, you know, there's stakes and there's action. And it also just gives you a chance to, this should be doing this. Why isn't it doing this? Why is it doing And so you're able to explain things without it seeming like, so let me sit down and tell you how our world works, which you can do when there's a foreigner coming in or things like that. But also that is kind of something that happens a lot. And when it's done well, I just look at it in stories. I'm like, I know what you're doing. You should have found some better way to do this. But there's ways you can do it to show what's going on. You can also just like completely immerse your reader in the world and have things happen and they have to figure it out. If, you're, if your character's figuring it out, your reader can figure it out alongside them. If your character knows everything, I have seen many science fiction books. They just act like everything is completely normal and you figure out what's going on eventually. And I absolutely love that approach. And then I tried to write it and everyone was like, it's way too confusing. We don't know what's going on. I'm like, well, the point was you were supposed to read it and you would figure it out. 
But most people don't want to. They want to have some explanation. And I think part of that is just showing what elements are important as they become important. So you don't need to show everything at once. You just show through the plot, through the characters, through the themes, the little bits. And this is also where if you tie your world into the plot, so if the things, like if they really hate, if if a culture really hates cowards and throws cowards out of the city, that can be part of a plot where, you know, the opening scene is a character being thrown out of the city because they're viewed as a coward. Or things like that, where you're showing the effects of what is going on instead of just telling what it is. So on the Writing Excuses podcast, which by the way, you should listen to, it's a great podcast. They, I don't know if this is original to them or not, but there's a famous title called As You Know Bob, which describes an exposition info dump scene where someone's like, oh, as you know, our world is like this. And the reason that's a problem is because obviously the person knows, so why would you tell them? So one of the people on the Writing Excuses podcast came up with a, a different version, which is the Bob, you idiot, which is where the person goes, Bob, you idiot, don't you know it, it works like this? And no, you're wrong. It doesn't work like that. And so you have your characters get into an argument over things you want to get across to the reader. I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that as a fantasy author, you do not need to explain everything about how something works in the same go. One of the things that I've tried to do with my one world that has a you know, rather unique setting that on a bunch of floating islands in the sky. And unfortunately, I do not have the benefit of having the foreigner come in that you can just explain everything to. All right. And so one of the things I did to try and get around that is to simply break up where I'm giving the information. Think about, well, what do my readers really need right up at the front? You know, the bare core they need to convey there. You know, I'm conveying that as best I as best I can in as natural way to the character's voice as I can. You know, I then simply break up the other chunks of it. So it's not all coming in one paragraph, but I'm scattering it throughout the whole scene. Okay. And I'm also trying to think of, you know, how would this character describe it? So instead of him saying, oh, I am on an island in the sky, everyone has wings. You know, instead of saying, you know, my character looks out at the horizon past where the edge of the island into the sky is beyond. You know, and I just describe him as he's moving. Well, he unfurls his wings. You know, he sees these other people and he see, and notices what color their wings are. He notices their wings flapping or doing other things. Okay. And so by that, you know, I never explicitly state this is set on a floating island in the sky. Everyone has wings. But I simply describe him in the world and eventually the reader eventually gets a point of this is what the world is while I'm describing everything from his voice and breaking the information up so that readers are able to more naturally be integrated into the story. That there was a great example of how to do subtext as well. Throwback to a previous episode, yo. And I love that approach. Hope had mentioned this, that she loves it too. But just when characters fully embrace everything about their world and they just live in it. And I just love, I love that approach. That's my favorite when um, the author won't explicitly just tell me what's happening or what's going on. I like to discover it myself, even as a reader, because I'm coming to the book knowing that it is in a different world and it's going to be unique and different from what I'm used to. Um, But me discovering that is also part of the fun, I think. 
Thank you guys for joining me on this episode, and thanks to all of you listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do you have a topic or question you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast? Email us at info at to let us know. And as always, special thanks to our Patreon supporters, Taylor Cloxton and Michael Stanton. Want to help us better guide and inspire Christian storytellers? Visit patreon.com slash to become a supporter and get access to exclusive Story Embers updates, swag, and more. Finally, join me again on March 15th as Josiah, Rolina, and Deus discuss what makes a plot conflict irresistible on the next episode of the Story Embers podcast. 